The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 146. One day, I shall come back. And that's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Bravehearty. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding. Position universe. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Hello, I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Should be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the first Doctor story, Planet of Giants. And joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. I think today I am the panel. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, that's uh, Father Corey, uh, he's very busy these days, and so we have to accommodate uh, his schedule. I mean, you know, yeah. he's a pastor. Uh, he thinks yeah. that his parish comes first, you know? Come on. <laughs> uh, such delusions. Yes, yes. Uh, so uh, we do miss him, but uh, we're going to yeah. carry on uh, so that we can be sure to have uh, stuff for, for our listeners to have to listen yeah, to. We're going to keep calm and carry on. That's right. So uh, I do want to mention first that if you are listening to this you know, on the website or just from a file that someone shared with you, be sure to subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in. Uh, you can now get us on Spotify and iHeartRadio. Uh, you can find us on your favorite podcast app or on our YouTube channel, the SQPN YouTube channel, where you should hit the bell to be sure to get notifications. Let's talk about this episode. This is the, the first episode of the second season of Doctor Who, the, the first serial. I, I, get, I get confused you know, when I'm talking about classic Who, where a story would carry on over several episodes. This one has three episodes in this first story. Mm -hmm. And they filmed it as four, but they they thought it didn't work as well as four, and so they cut cut it down to three, and it actually works pretty well. It doesn't drag the way some classic who can as much. Yeah, yeah. There, there, classic who often has these long moments of just uh, not much happening, uh, as TV generally did. It, TV was not as yeah. fast-paced as it is today. This had a little bit of a faster pace to it, uh, although it didn't feel rushed at all because it, it is, after all, a 50-year-old TV. So, And children's TV at that. Yes. Uh, we have uh, still the Doctors Traveling with Susan, Ian, and Barbara. It's the first episode that is set in contemporary England, mid-20th century, 1960s England, since the very first episode of the first season, Unearthly Child, because the Doctors have been trying to get back to... England to, you know, to bring Ian and Barbara home again. To uh, unkidnap them. <laughs> yes. Which, yeah, yeah. That sort of has been kind of forgotten, I think, in all of this, this idea that the doctor actually kidnapped Ian and Barbara. Uh, so Yeah. So now they've gotten home, basically. They're just the wrong size. Yeah. There's this weird thing that happens where uh, the doctor is tr trying to, he puts it, slip the TARDIS back into Earth in the middle of the 20th century. And the the TARDIS doors open before the ship is properly materialized because of some kind of space pressure was too great as it was materializing. 
Yeah, and so they the space pressure shrunk them. It seems and <laughs> and the TARDIS and this is neat. This is this is the I really like this serial because it shows something that you don't normally see on Doctor Who. I mean, we we know the TARDIS is dimensionally transcendental, so the inside is bigger than the outside, but they very rarely play with that concept. And right. This shows what the show could be in the early days before it had settled into the formulas that, you know, typically dominate a program once it finds its legs. And so this is kind of early experimentation. In fact, the idea for a shrinking episode like this is one that had been part of the original series pitch, and they ended up not doing it in the first season, but they do it now. And they don't do anything like this again, so far as I can remember, until Legopolis, the final fourth Doctor story where we get the TARDIS shrinking again. And they don't fully explore it, in I don't think, until the twelfth Doctor series uh, flatline, where we have the uh, the TARDIS both shrunk and with a full-size Doctor trapped in it. So it's just the interface to the outside world that shrunk and with other two-dimensional stuff going on in Flatline. I think, Jimmy, you, you've forgotten another uh, example of this. Uh-huh. What's that? Uh, when they shrunk, when the Doctor and uh, Leela shrunk to go inside his own head in The Invisible well, Enemy. True, <laughs> and they did use a component of the TARDIS for that, but the TARDIS itself didn't do it. Oh, okay. <laughs> and these are all accidents where you know the, it's it's a it's not deliberate. They're not deliberately trying right. to shrink themselves. And normally, I'm not at all a fan of shrinking episodes of different sci-fi series, but I like this one just because it's so different from other Doctor Who. They have the characters interacting with giant models all the time. They can't right. interact normally. And uh, this was inspired, by the way, by. Now, the previous one where they shrink to go inside the doctor's head in The Invisible Enemy, yep. that was inspired by the the movie Fantastic Voyage. Right. This was inspired by a documentary called Silent Spring, which was about the effects, a very famous documentary, about the effects of uh, toxins on our environment. And so right. that's what we have in this is there are some scientists who are making an insecticide that actually is way too powerful. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting that so yeah, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring was really this this seminal work in the '60s and '50s and '60s that really you know people I mean we think about it now we can, we know oh you know the the environmental uh, pollution and and all that sort of stuff that seems you know common knowledge now but back then it was so it was groundbreaking this idea that you know they want they wanted to perf- and you see the scientists we we're, we're in this episode who talks about we need to kill the insects because we're trying to grow more food for people because we you know people who don't have enough food in the world mm-hmm. and that without the recognition of well what are we doing to our environment when we're you know dropping all this poison in it and so there there is this clear message that that we're this is a message episode the message that the writer of this is trying to get across in the midst of having this fun you know journey through a world of giant things um mm-hmm. Which and there's some clever moments in this. Um, I have to say that shrinking down and walking around in a giant world is mm-hmm. is is very 60s. This was a, a there were several. In fact, there was a, there was a whole TV series uh, built around the idea of these of people being uh, you know in a world a giant world 
uh, what mm-hmm. was that called? I forget the name of it. Well, Land of the Giants was one of right. them from the 60s. Uh, that was an Irwin Ir- Allen production, if I recall correctly. Right. I think it's broader than that because I think children naturally are small compared right. to the world they're in. And I think a, a standard children's fantasy is what would it be like to be really tiny? And there have been all kinds of books and TV shows and movies based on that premise. Like, you know, there is all kinds of children's fiction about elves and stuff and what would right. it be or gnomes. What would it be like to be that small? And then there are things like The Borrowers, you know, the classic children's book about tiny people with tails. Mm-hmm. And and I think this is another manifestation of that thing. Right. And like Gulliver's Travels, the classic. Gu- yeah, Gulliver's Travels has yeah. that. Uh, and the flip side of being really giant yes. compared to everybody else. Yeah. A couple of notes I had before we talk about the episode content specifically. This fits in between the Reign of Terror, which had them had our the TARDIS crew back in the reign of terror that followed the French Revolution. <laughs> right. And it comes before the Dalek invasion of Earth, which is Susan's final story uh, uh, on the show right? Uh, as a regular. So this is Susan's next to last outing here. And I have to say, you know, in this one, Susan is less screechy. I mean, she's still a little screechy, but she's mm-hmm. she's got a, a she's matured a bit since the first episode. Yeah, uh, or put another way, the writers have allowed her to mature a bit. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. The, the actress has always been fine, but the writers, I think, have finally figured out how to write her, uh, unfortunately, at the end. Yeah. Also, I wanted to comment, just to get it out of the way, on the science yep. in this. Um, because if you really sh- were to shrink somebody down by space pressure, I mean, that sounds like it's some kind of spatial manipulation that would otherwise leave them unchanged. But that raises bunches of questions like, does Ian still weigh 180 pounds when he's an inch tall? <laughs> and right. and that clearly is not the case. They've changed mass here. Right. And so somehow they've lost mass. It must be the space pressure affects the Higgs boson particles in them or something to cause them to lose mass without ripping atoms out of their bodies. <laughs> um, <clears throat> also... There are all kinds of questions that they d- that they don't really raise in this. Like, if you're that size, how can you even breathe? Because air pressure is going to work differently. Yep. They do attempt to engage the science a little bit, which was part of their educational remit, because Ian points out that at their size, their voices would sound like a little squeak to right. people because their vocal cords are so short. They don't say that's why, but that would be why. And then they say that everybody else's voices are going to sound just like a low rumble to them. And it wasn't clear to me, is that because they're in, they're envisioning this as somehow speeding up the tiny people? I don't think so. I'm not sure why yeah. someone with normal-sized vocal cords would sound like just a low rumble. But apparently, the time scale that the TARDIS crew is living on and the time scale everyone else is living on is the same. So they're not like speeded up. But it is a little inconsistent with regard to the science of this, but at least they're trying. Yeah, I like that. And the fact that um, the the when someone approaches, they're just so big that they can't they can't take them all in. And, you know, like a normal sized person, they can't take them all in. They were like a mountain moving yeah. around in shadows. I like that, and and what it means is is throughout this, the 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 TARDIS crew, and the and the the normal size people 
don't really interact directly. Um, mm-hmm. it, it could have they could have had you know all this you know the the the, the stuff where the the big people see them and all of a sudden oh my and then there's yeah. all this interaction. But there's really two stories going on right next to each other in, throughout this, mm-hmm. which is that interlock. Yes. Because the heroes have to save the day and stop the bad scientist businessmen people, but they right. don't do it by directly confronting them. And uh, we frankly, don't we never we never yeah. get like a King Kong and Fay Ray moment where anybody picks anybody else up in their giant prop hand. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh although I had to say that probably the, the biggest hero in this is the nosy op- telephone operator. She's probably yes, the one yeah. <laughs> who saves the day. But we'll get to that in a moment. I do want to note that Susan tells, I think, Ian or Barbara at the very beginning that the most dangerous moment in the TARDIS travel is the point of materialization. Just like an airplane. (laughs) Just landing it is the hardest part. Landing Uh, and taking off are the two most dangerous points. The middle is not nearly as dangerous. That's right. Um, uh, There is a moment uh, in this – when the space pressure and things are going wrong, the doctor snaps at Barbara like he has. But this time he apologizes to her and he says – I sometimes forget the niceties under pressure. I, and that feels like a, a definite uh, effort by the writers again to kind of soften, soften the doctor's edges yeah. a little. He he comes across in that first season as kind of well, not even kind of very prickly and very yeah. uh, uh, and maybe that maybe that makes him less uh, amenable to the audience. And so they're trying to soften that a bit. Yeah, like they it's they learned their lesson with the first doctor. They should have remembered it with subsequent prickly doctors the <laughs> the prickly doctors are not the fun doctors right and they end up having to to ameliorate that a bit as they go on so you know after they land you know they they kind of explore the the this they don't realize that they're small yet and uh, they come encounter these first they encounter like these giant creatures Oh, that looks like a giant earthworm. It's just a regular yeah, they think, earthworm. They think they're on another planet because it's got all these giant creatures. Right, right. Uh, so, and, they, and they find a giant ant. Both are dead. Uh, so that's significant. Yeah, and I'm like, good that that ant is dead. That thing has formic acid in them. At your size, that formic yeah. acid would be deadly. Yes, yes. Not to mention the strength of the ant and, and you being potentially food. And then it's when Ian and Susan discover a giant sign, quote unquote, which is really a, just like a box or something or a piece of paper. It's a seed packet for um, night scented stock, and that's a kind of flower. Okay, okay, uh, and and it it makes it has a reference to Norwich, England, and so they realize they're they are on Earth, and it's the Doctor who realizes that they're tiny before everyone else does. Ian like thinks that they're at the World's Fair, where they're you know with the exhibition of. Of you know a novelty expression of of regular sized things made giant, uh, which is kind of actually what has happened by the prop masters. Mm-hmm. And so they're about the size of an inch. They're about an inch tall. You know, an inch to six feet might be the scale. So one one seventy second scale. Right. And in fact, all of the activity of this episode happens within uh, the the front garden of a, of this house. So a uh, a cobblestone path, really. And then a small room off the house that's a sort of laboratory. And that's it. That's where everything happens. Mm-hmm. Um, we later, in this episode, we later get to see another environment, but it's like the a room in somebody else's house where they've got a switchboard. Right, right, right. Uh, uh, but but the TARDIS crew moves probably, probably no more than about, you know, 15 feet in any in one direction in the, in the course of this because they're so small. Yeah. I, I like the reveal where, you know, they've encountered this giant stone 
the, and they're going, why is this stone cemented to the ground? It's got cement under it, but right. surely the stone itself is so massive you don't need to cement it in place. <laughs> and then, then we get this pullback and, and we see, oh, it's part of a, a walkway in somebody's garden. That's right. That's right. You know, and it's, it's again that idea of, you know, if you, if you look very closely, it's like an alien world, but it really is the mundane world of someone's front yard. We, we, so we, and then Ian uh, ends up, um, First, he gets caught in a matchbox. He ha- hides in yeah. a matchbox that that he finds. I like the gi- the giant matches, and yes. you know, like there's one of them burned and stuff. And these are the old fashioned like kitchen matches, so they're they've got right. wooden handles and stuff. Right. Uh, and he hides because these two two men show up, these giant men. Uh, and then we switch perspective to the normal size, and it's th- these two men are involved somehow with the creation of this new insecticide. That one of them is a, I guess he's a government uh, yeah. inspector. He's a civil servant. His name is Pharaoh, and yes. he wants he he is, is his job is to evaluate the effects of this pending government approval. So he's like right. one of the key people to determine. He doesn't make the decision. Does it get approved? But he writes the report recommending whether it gets approved. And he's realized the problem with this stuff. It's called DN six. And it is too deadly. It doesn't just kill the bad insects. It kills all the insects for the ecosystem it's released in. Right. And so he is going to disrecommend to the minister of his department that it be approved. And that really gets up the nose of this other guy. He's a businessman named Forrester who um, wants it approved because he's heavily invested in it and it will ruin him if it's not approved. I have to say that the three that, so there's these two guys, Farrow and Forrester, and then the scientist later on Smithers, mm-hmm. who are all very cold, very like emotionless throughout this. It's a it's very um reserved in in all of their dealings. Well, the British especially in this period had a reputation for being very reserved. Yes. Also, this is inter- fascinating children's television. In in other news, there's a, been a dispute about the uh, taxation rates of outlying trade routes in <laughs> another part of the galaxy. Exactly. Yeah, I can imagine kids being so thrilled to 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 sit through uh, these discussions of the destructiveness of someone should put through a vote of no confidence in the Senate. <laughs> so. Uh... So the Far- uh, Forrester uh, in it in his, uh, will be ruined if if Pharaoh writes this report. So he tries to bribe him, uh, which you know get, gets uh, uh, Pharaoh very uh, upset. And so he, if he can't bribe him, he shoots him. Uh, and it's a fairly you know bloodless kids' TV shooting. I mean, although it yeah. is you know a murder, but <laughs> he does shoot him. And and it's very interesting how the, the they find the the TARDIS crew encounters the dead body they like they walk up to pharaoh is laying in the in the dirt forrester went off to do whatever i don't know but pharaoh is now laying in the dirt you know dead obviously dead and the way that they film this is they project pharaoh's head on this giant projector screen and then the actors stand in front of it yeah it's it's real projection yeah so it's very clearly you know not you know it's not green screen it is this is all practical effects. This is all right there it, on on the camera. So it's it's a a very um, primitive way of doing it. But uh, so it, it's interesting to see the doctor and everyone else. They encounter more dead bugs, presumably c- killed by this DN six. Ian is suddenly back with the others. I'm not sure how. Like they they've oh. cut something out there. 
No, they got him. They 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 paid that off. They have to walk to uh, where Ian is to where the matchbox has been taken. Okay. When I was watching, there was a sudden jump from from one thing to and then suddenly mm-hmm. Ian was there. Um, uh, there's whenever you have a story of people who've been shrunk, there's always a cat. That's <laughs> just mm-hmm. it's yeah. like a requirement. And so in this, there is a cat. Although um, the doctor tells him not to look into the cat's eyes, and I'm not sure why. Yeah, I know. I have that in my notes too. Don't, he's like, "Don't look in the cat's eyes. Close your own if you want to." And I'm going, "Why? Then you can't see what the cat's doing." <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, is the, the cat going to hypnotize you? Maybe this is some <laughs> legend about cats they had in mid 20th century England or something that they can <laughs> stare you down or something. Yes, it's right. And then the cat walks away. I mean, it's like the the the, the cat is. It, the cat is the cliffhanger for the first episode, uh, but they, they, you know, then the cat walks away, and there's, there's no, no more. The cat is n- doesn't enter the story at all after yeah. that, which is kind of funny. And it's like in a cheap horror movie where you get a jump scare, and it turns out to be the cat. Yes, yeah. Uh, Ian and Barbara end up hiding in the dead man's briefcase, and uh, and I have to say the sets the sets in this are fantastic. Uh, you know, all the blown really up things are. very large. It, it would be difficult to ensure that the scale is always correct, but the, I mean everything looks really good. Yeah, I I I I forget if it was this episode that I read was like had more modeling than in any previous Doctor Who episode or something. Maybe that was a different episode, but the giant props are really impressive with the briefcase and they've got this giant leather fold, you know, yep. from the top of the briefcase and the giant matches, the giant dead bee, the giant dead ant, the giant dead earthworm. Right. It's all really nicely done. Right, and the fly that actually moves, the one that isn't dead at the when they yeah. first encounter it. <laughs> um, so then we have this. Um, uh, Ian and Barbara end up in the laboratory. Forrester carries the briefcase into the laboratory, and they get bu- you know bun- bundled about inside the uh, briefcase. So they're all dizzy and stuff, staggering out after they after the briefcase gets in there. I, I like that touch. Um, and then Barbara touches the seeds, the these seeds that are in the laboratory. Uh, wheat seeds, I think they are. Yeah, they're uh, wheat. That are covered with, obviously covered with the insecticide. Uh, and then she sees a fly, which makes her faint. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, kind of, it's kind of funny moment. Yeah. And it's a little odd that there's insecticide on these seeds, because what you do with insecticides is you play, you spray it on the adult plant so that the bugs don't eat the adult plant. But these are seeds that have been, they haven't been milled yet. But yeah. they've they're out of they're out of the uh, the stalk. They've they're they're just de- detached seeds that have been harvested and rolled. Probably someone rolled them in their hands to you know separate them from the chaff and stuff. Right. I, I wonder maybe they was you know they were they were going to experiment with it and feed it to uh, bugs or something like that. But yeah, you know, just leaving it, leaving it out seems like a bad idea. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, the doctor and Susan are trying to reunite with Ian and Barbara, who ended up inside the lab, and they find this. This drain pipe coming out of the laboratory into a drain. Like, this laboratory does not have proper plumbing. Let's just put, say that right off the bat. Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, and, the, the and they've been and they can climb up the drain because they've been pouring chemicals down it, and that's abraded the uh, the the sides <laughs> of the pipe. So there are right. lots of handhold and footholds that the doctor and and Susan can use to climb up. And I'm going. There might be chemical residue in all of those handholds and footholds. Are you sure you want to be exposing yourself to that at this right. size? And if, in fact, the doctor says, like, it's when the first time he goes in the pipe, oh, it stinks in there from all the chemicals. Like, yeah, then maybe don't go in. 
I mean, this climb, by the way, has got to be one epic climb. This is like climbing up the side of a building here. That, yeah. That, free climbing it, no less. With with a doctor in a cape uh, as an elderly man. So I'm very impressed. Yeah. By the way, we should mention what's going on in the in the other parallel story at this point. Uh, so the civil servant has been killed, and then this scientist who developed DN6 shows up. And that's Smithers. You mentioned him. And he is interestingly morally amoral yes. um, because his, he, his, he realizes that, uh, that Forrester has murdered Pharaoh. And he, like, doesn't care because he's too ruthlessly scientific, but not in the not with science as its own goal, like most mad scientists. Instead, his goal is to save people from dying of starvation. And so if one man dies of of acute lead poisoning, <laughs> but it allows him to save people from starvation, he's OK with that. So right. they they like are dealing with uh, Pharaoh's body. And the plan is for Forrester to take uh, Pharaoh was about to leave on a vacation. He was going to cross over to France in his boat. And so uh, Forrester's plan is to take the body out and dump it and turn the boat over somehow at sea. Right. And then it will be like he just died on his vacation. And right. so no one will realize he was murdered. They'll just find his body floating, at which point I go. With a bullet hole in it. With a bullet in it, yeah. <laughs> it seems like you haven't thought this through very well. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and and Smithers is all, you know, he's like, he's upset that they might get discovered, but he's not upset that this man is dead. It's very, very cold. That's like I was saying before, they, they're very emotionless. Well, they, they, the Doctor and Susan, they climb up into the sink. So luckily, the that drain pipe goes directly from the outdoors right into this sink in the laboratory. And they climb up through the sink drain pipe. And Ian and Barbara, they're going to, this isn't one of those old sinks that has a stopper on a chain. And so they're going to climb down the chain uh, into the sink because, of course, it's so far, uh, you know, it's, it's so tall for them. But then Forrester and Smithers come into the lab to wash their hands of Pharaoh's blood. They've, they've disposed of the body or hidden the body. Uh, and so they have to scramble back up out of the way. And the doctor and Susan have to climb back into the drain pipe. Uh, to avoid you know the the being seen, but of course they're about to wash their hands, and you know what what's going to happen? And uh, well, it turns they out they drowned. Right, right. They the they puts a stopper. They puts the the Smithers puts the stopper in the sink to wash his hands. I I I, I don't I don't know about you, but I don't generally wash my hands. Not in if a I'm sink trying to get water. blood off of them. No, I let the water just flow. But okay. Yeah. But then he pulls the stopper and the sink drains, and you're like, oh no, the doctor and Susan have drowned. Well, it turns out that they've gone into the overflow pipe on the side, yeah. which is a very clever recognition that this is every sink has one of these overflow pipes. So the, very- the purpose of which for people who, I mean, there's partly, oh, I, okay, so, I mean, overflow is just to redirect the water, but also, and this is something they don't really touch on, but also every typical drain like this, well, I guess this one might not need it because it doesn't connect to the sewer. Right. Um, it just goes out into the garden. But if it connected to the sewer, then the doctor and Susan would have had to navigate one of those uh, bends right. in the pipe that is used to keep gas from coming up into the house from the sewer. Right, right. Yeah, they didn't, yeah, they, they didn't talk about them having to go through that because that would have standing water in it. 
that they would yeah. have had to swim through. So that's interesting. Yeah, good thing for the, lucky for them they didn't have to do that. I, I love though that you know they 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 now that they have survived the drowning by getting into the overflow pipe, they come back up, and so the doctor and Susan are literally up the spout. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> they went up the spout again. Well, and it's also British slang for something is up the spout if it's useless or beaten up or done for. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know that one. That's a good one. Uh, so meanwhile, Forrester has to, uh, you know, call a, a, the inspector's office to, you know, kind of throw them off. And he needs to impersonate this inspector. And he does so using the clever trick of putting the handkerchief over the mouthpiece of the phone because, you know, that's effective. Yeah, classic uh, classic thing you'd see in movies back then. It's somehow yes. using a handkerchief over the phone disguises your voice. Yes, it does not. And in fact, in this, it doesn't work because the operator, this is back in the days when an operator had to connect you, and operators sometimes were nosy and listened to people's calls, and uh, it doesn't fool the, the local operator. She says um, uh, that this is, you know, this isn't Mr. Farrow. It's not him at all. Interesting, she calls herself the strange operator. Did you notice that? That's a term. I, I wasn't familiar with that. I thought it was maybe a place name. Oh, maybe it's a place called Strange. Or Strang or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that could be it. Now, in, in the midst of all this, remember, Barbara has touched the insecticide, which is, you know, a deadly chemical, and yep. she's beginning to suffer the effects. And she doesn't tell everyone. Like, she keeps it to herself. Why is she not telling? This was, I think, a huge flaw in the story, because it makes mm -hmm. no sense that she's not telling anyone that she's touched the insecticide. Yeah, I I don't know why, from a storyteller's perspective, they do that, because if she told people, then everyone else could worry alongside of her. Right. And But they're very subtle about it. At first, they don't even, they just have her looking uncomfortable, like she's afraid, but we don't know what of. And you kind of have to be an adult, I mean, to put the pieces together and figure out what she's scared about before they announce it late in the game. If right. they announced it earlier, the other characters could have worried alongside of her and it would have created additional urgency. So I don't know why they don't. Maybe they thought it would be too scary for children if they announced it early, if the solution was still three weeks away in broadcast time. Oh, uh, yeah. I but I don't, I don't know. Um it's not like those Sherlock Holmes stories where people irrationally, like the Sussex Vampire or the Yellow Face or things like that, where someone is irrationally holding back information that would otherwise collapse the mystery that Sherlock needs to solve. Here, <laughs> right. there's no mystery to collapse. It's just, why isn't she telling people? Right. I mean, it might be that at the, at the very beginning, Ian kind of mocks the idea of, of course, you wouldn't be so dumb as to touch the, the, the insecticide-coated seeds and maybe she feels foolish for having done so but i don't know at one point she does she's like it looks like she's about to tell him and then they get interrupted i think when the doctor and susan show up but mm -hmm. yeah it doesn't make sense uh so they they decide that they need to uh, alert the authorities to what's going on that there's been a murder and that they've that there's this insecticide uh and so the only thing they can think of is they need to call the police <laughs> I, i'm not sure why they think this is going to work uh, they they want to you know use the telephone, but Ian has just said that no one's going to understand us. We sound like a squeak, so I'm not sure how they thought this would work. Yeah, it's maybe well, they try when they finally do get through. They're shouting through the telephone, and it's not really working. Right. 
So maybe they thought that the telephone was going to process their voices in a way. If you get really close to the telephone and shout into it with three of you shouting, maybe that's going to disturb the microphone enough in the telephone to transmit your voices effectively. Right. But in the end, I mean, really, it's the operator who saves the day. And as I said yeah. in the beginning, she, you know, she calls back on some pretense and the constable's with her. And, you know, she, she, her talks husband's to, the constable. Yeah. Her husband's the constable. And she talks to Forrester, who's disguising himself as Pharaoh. And they recognize that, you know, this is, this is, there's something with this. He's not really Pharaoh. And then the constable is going to end at the end, show up and, you know, discover, um, uh, Forrester holding a gun on Smithers and everything falls away. You know, if the doctor and, uh, and, and the TARDIS crew weren't there, this would all end up exactly as it did. Wouldn't it? Um, I'm not sure. I think that the the fact the TARDIS crew, well, the TARDIS crew do, does a couple of things that are that contribute to the resolution. One of them is they do make the call, and we get this interesting procedural where they have to, you know, this is an old style telephone right. with a cord and a receiver, and they have to somehow lift the receiver as a group, and then they they use corks. To, to lever it, sort of, yeah. to hold it off the cradle. And it's since it's such an old telephone system, they didn't have 999 at right. the time, which is the British equivalent of 911. So they couldn't call for emergency. But you also don't have to dial the operator. You can just like jiggle the little things in the cradle that tell the cradle whether the receiver is off the hook or not. And that'll get you the operator. And so I think that's how they do that. And then I think it's it's the co second call from the house that the doctor and crew place that helps prompt the operator into further investigating. Right. So even though they can't make themselves understood over the telephone, she becomes aware something's happening out there we need to check on. Right. And also... They then have a plan at the end to start a fire. To start a fire, yeah. And they blow up a can of the DN. Uh, they blow up a can of insecticide. It's not clear that it's DN six, but it's an aerosol can, right? And we have another procedural where they've got to use a match to like light a Bunsen burner and then burn through this can, which explodes and sprays insecticide into the face of Forrester, thus disabling him right. and things like that. With the force of a thousand-pound bomb, uh, for the, the doctor says, that for, the, for us, this would be the force of a thousand-pound bomb, which is a huge bomb. That is not a small explosion. No. So we get one of those Rose Tyler, run for your lives moments. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, I did. I did enjoy uh, the Ian and Susan trying to light the match on the side of the uh, of the matchbox. Yeah, like they the, got to do it like a battering ram. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the doctor's giving instructions from the side. You know, uh, try a sharper angle. And Ian's like, I I know what I'm doing. Stop battering me. <laughs> <laughs> he, yeah, he's like, Doctor, have you ever tried to lift one of these things? <laughs> yes. I'm going, well, actually, the doctor was shown smoking a pipe in, in the first serial. So, yeah, I think he's used matches before. Yeah, well, not one that big, though. I mean, not that one thing, that big, yeah. That thing looked like the equivalent of a, like a six by six, you know, uh, uh, piece of wood, which is a heavy, would be a heavy uh, piece of lumber. So the insecticide can explodes, blinding Forrester, letting Smithers, you know, get the gun from him uh, as, just as the policeman arrives. Yeah. Also, Smithers has turned good ish. 
Ish, by this yes. point, because he's realized he in investigating what's happened in the garden, he's realized that the DN6 has been killing all of the insects, including the ones you need to maintain an ecosystem, right. like bees that pollinate and earthworms that, you know, uh, process soil and things like that. And so he's he's now, you know, willing to realize the problems with DN6. But Forrester is still so invested in it literally and figuratively right that he's like holding a gun on smithers that's right that's right uh now uh, so once the the policeman has uh, smithers and pharaoh in in hand uh barbara is become very sick by this point and the doctor says that her white blood cells are too small to deal with the insecticide molecules but if they get her back to normal size the dose will be normal and then she'll be fine yeah, I don't think that's how this works. Um, <laughs> yeah. White blood cells go after invading organisms, not insecticide chemicals. Your kidneys process those. Yeah. They need to get her kidneys back to full size, I think. Yeah. I, I might have imputed white blood cells, him oh, saying white okay. blood cells. He says something about her, um, maybe he says her, her system. I'm trying to, I, I don't remember exactly what it, what it was, but yeah, it was... Basically, he says they got to get her back to full size so her body can handle the dosage of the poison that she received. That's right. And so uh, on their way out of the lab, the doctor grabs one of the insecticide-covered seeds for some reason. Um, and then the doctor, it's, it's and, clear— And he wraps it in his cape that he's yes. been stylishly wearing all this time, so it's got a practical function in this episode. Yes, yes, capes. Uh, take that, Edna Mode. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the doctor— is clearly not sure whether he can reverse the effect of being made small, but is is trying to put on a brave face for everyone. But then, of course, it works, and he's all excited, and everyone's very, very uh, excited. And for some reason, uh, you know, they're in the TARDIS. As the TARDIS embiggens, mm -hmm. uh, the insecticide seed that they've brought inside shrinks, uh, and presumably the insecticide molecules in in, in Barbara also shrink. As the ship and the people grow bigger, I'm thinking, why is that? Yeah, I'm not. I I was unclear on this too. It's I, it's it's an effective way for them to show the viewer we have returned to normal size since this other thing didn't re get embiggened with us. Right. So it may be just that this somehow undoes the effects of the space pressure, and since the space pressure had never been applied to the seed. The seed doesn't re doesn't get larger because it was already full size. Right. But everybody else who was compressed by the space pressure now returns to their normal size. I think right. that must be the idea here. Yeah. What's interesting is so they in order to show that the TARDIS is small, they've put this tiny model of the TARDIS in the garden. But the the, the trick is is they use that tiny TARDIS. As a representative of the full size TARDIS in other show in other you know episodes, yeah. You know, anytime because, you need a real long shot, yeah. And so it's kind of funny. It's like, well, yeah. In other shots, we try to pretend it is big, but now we're just really pretending it's it is actually as small as it really is. So I thought that was funny. Uh, do you, so and that's how it ends. They've they've they uh, the doctor's trying to um, well, he's trying to use the scanner to find out where they've ended up. And his scanner broke because of the space pressure at the beginning well, of the episode? Well, actually, it was stupider than that. They said at the beginning of the episode, the scanner broke, and it looked to me like it shattered. Yeah. And it's not shattered here at the end of the episode, so more evidence of TARDIS regeneration, I guess. Right. But they, what he said was, the doctor said it was like something too big for its frame. 
And I'm going, TV cameras look at things that are too big to fit in the frame all the time. It doesn't cause them to shatter. Right, right. It was very strange, The uh, that, that initial one. Yeah, I mean, the purpose of that on the plot level was to keep them from looking outside and seeing that they were tiny and at ground level. Yes. Uh, so they... Uh, so they're going to, you know, materialize in some new place. They don't know where they are yet, um, and that's what we're going to find out in the next episode when they are with, uh, like we you said earlier, um, in the twenty second century where the Daleks have invaded the Earth. Uh, in in that that story. So uh, so that brings us to the end. Jimmy, do you have any further notes that you want to talk a few, about? A few, few little things. Um, another interesting bit of telephone technology from this time that plays a role in the story is after the TARDIS crew has propped the cradle or the receiver off the cradle of the phone, that means the line is engaged. And so you, the, uh, when the bad guys try to make a call, they can't. Um, and that was because at the time, no yep. matter even if you had multiple phones in a house, if one of them is off the hook, you do not get a dial tone and cannot dial out. There That's were right. no multiple lines, no call waiting. It, nobody could communicate with you if even one phone was off the hook, which is why people would leave their phones off the hook when they didn't want to be disturbed. <laughs> um, well, also, and, and back in uh-huh. the day when uh, with modems and dial up, uh, that was always a problem because someone inevitably would pick up the phone in the middle of your, you know, AOL session. Oh, <laughs> back yeah. in the day too. Yes, all those, all the lines would be connected. There's a moment of interesting. I don't. I I always hesitate to to leap too quickly to this conclusion, but we do have a moment where Barbara and and Susan are trying to climb up uh, to look over a rock in the walkway. And the doctor won't, even though he's clearly much more frail than Barbara is, who isn't right. even poisoned yet at this point. It's like, oh, no, Barbara, I'll climb up because I don't want you to hurt yourself. <laughs> it's, it's like, she's sounder of frame than you are. Yes. <laughs> um, but let's see. There's also a moment where the um, when they're going to blow up the can of insecticide. Ian says there'll be metal flying all over everywhere. And Susan says, it'll be just like that air raid, grandfather. And the doctor says, yes, what infernal machines those Zeppelins were. So apparently <laughs> the doctor and Susan had been in a World War I air raid before, yes. which we'd never have never seen. Right. Um, and then there's a great line where after Smithers has turned good-ish, um, he tells Forrester that DN6 is more deadly than radiation. <laughs> and, and, I, and I love that because as a scientist, he should understand. I mean, I guess you could say he's a chemist, but even then, he should understand the relative risks of radiation. I mean, this is the 60s, so it's right after the 50s with all the atomic mutant monster movies. Right. But there's a fascinating history, I guess, to how radiation has been perceived. Yes. When it was first discovered, it was like this mysterious energy that radiates off of stuff. And so what do you want to do with that? Let's use it to revitalize people. And <laughs> yes. so so they would drink radium water, which right. was water that had been infused with a small amount of radium on the idea it was going to give you more energy. They'd go to radium spas and sit in yes. caves infused yeah. with ra- radi- uh, radium rocks. <laughs> yeah. So anytime someone tells you this is has energy, so it's going to be good for you, remember radium water. Because what radium actually does, it sits in the same column of the periodic table as calcium, and that means it has the same number of electrons on the outer shell as calcium, and that means your body 
looks at it and thinks, this is calcium. Let's use it to build bones. Right. And so uh, there is a famous case in the early 20th century of this millionaire who just was convinced radium water made him feel more vital. And he was rich enough to afford the stuff in cases and drank it every day. And it became an integral part of his jaw as a result, because when we chew, we stress our jaw. And so we're constantly building bone in our jaw. Right. And he got radium jaw and it did not end well. Yeah. And eventually people got so scared, especially after the atom bomb, they became hyper vigilant about radiation to where that now people are even scared of cell phones emitting radiation when in fact cell phones don't emit the type of radiation that causes damage they emit radio waves which is non-ionizing radiation it's too right. weak to knock electrons off the outer shell of an atom and create an ion which is the the dangerous stuff um like x-rays and so you know there's been this shift and here in the early mid 60s radiation has already been overtaken by that hypervigilance of dn6 is more dangerous than radiation as if right. radiation were uniquely and always very dangerous right right i mean there's all kinds of radiation including the radiation of, like of light. light and yeah. heat from the sun <laughs> uh, so yes uh, that is yeah that is a funny phrase it very sets it very much in its time and that's one of the fun things of of watching these older episodes is is they're it's the doctor, but it's very much a product of the time in which the show was being made, and, and I, I that's one of the things I enjoy. Uh, any other notes, Jimmy? Nope, that's it. All right, well, uh, let's uh, wrap things up then. Uh, we want to first take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Matthew J, Daphne M, Tim G, Ramses, and David W. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Right, so that's it from us. What did you think of Planet of Giants and our discussion of it? Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Or you can send us an email to doctorwho at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the second Doctor story called The Moon Base. And we're going to put a link in today's show notes to a special uh, animated version or a- animation yeah. version that's available on Amazon that you can right. uh, download. So, so The Moon Base was a four-part serial, and two of the parts, the footage has survived, but two of them did not. And so the, the mo- they went back and animated, like they did with The Reign of Terror, they animated the missing episodes and used the original soundtrack. And so we now have a, a nice, high-quality reconstruction of the moon base that you can watch. Excellent. So that'll be next time. So if you want to watch that in anticipation of our discussion, uh, that'll be available for you. Uh, so until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. And thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, as the Doctor says, there's nothing like a good fire, is there? Right. This is going to be fun.